Well, Woodland Church, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the hit reality game show, Wipeout, is back. And I love it. Some of you really love it. It originally aired on television uh, way back there in 2008, and now it is back, and it's bigger, and it's better than it's ever been. I love it because what is not to love about seeing someone who's not a really good athlete going through an obstacle course and then getting unexpectedly punched by a giant boxing glove and falling awkwardly into a muddy pool of water. I mean, what's not to love about that? Now, my wife, Chris, thinks what would make it funnier is if I was a contestant. She would love to see that, but that's not gonna happen. Now, I thought about it this week. Why do we laugh at uh, slapstick, wipeout kind of humor? I mean, what is it about it? Because when I'm flipping through the channels and I come to Wipeout, I just stop and I just have to watch it. And it seems like kind of the same thing over and over again. It's just people humiliating themselves, and I love it. So what is it about it? I actually found an article this week written by a psychologist who says there are three reasons why we love slapstick humor. First, it's a loss of dignity. When we see someone humiliated, we find it really funny as long as it's harmless and they're the ones who volunteered to do it. It's the pie in the face, you know, we, we love that. Secondly, it's unexpected. Even though you know something's gonna happen to them, you don't know when and then boom, they get hit. It's unexpected. But the third reason, the most important reason why we love slapstick wipeout kind of humor is because it's not us. You know, in real life, it's not at all funny when the wipeout is happening to us. And in this life, there are many times where we will all face unexpected wipeouts that blindside us and knock us to our knees. And maybe it's an unexpected betrayal that completely wipes out your trust and steals your peace. Or maybe it's pain, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain that weighs you down every moment and the constant burden just wipes out all your energy and all your joy. Or maybe it's a failure, an embarrassing wipeout that has made you feel like you can never get back on course. Or maybe it's a loss that you never saw coming, a sucker punch of grief that's knocked the wind out of your future and it's wiped out your happiness. Now here's the amazing thing about wipeouts. It's the painful wipeout that we experience in life that brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can fall into God's amazing grace. Those wipeouts turn into worship when they turn us to God. And so I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter three, verse 19. It's just one verse, but it's our key verse for the whole series. And would you stand in honor of God's word, Woodland Church? And just read this out loud with me. All you students, would you read it out loud with me? Let's read this out loud together. It's just one verse, but it's a powerful verse, and I want you to get it. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Dear Lord, I know that times of refreshing are on their way. A season of refreshing is on its way because it's all about your grace. I know that a season of blessing is getting ready to fall. I know the season of healing 
is on its way. But Lord, I, I know it all comes down to us turning to you. And I know that so many people have gone through wipeouts, Lord. We all will go through wipeouts in our lives, but I know that you wanna take those wipeouts and turn them into worship. You wanna use them to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can just fall into your ocean of grace. And I pray that you'd work miracles, Lord, over the next few moments. I know, Lord, that you're gonna work miracles in the lives of all these students at camp. We thank you, Lord, for your protection, your grace, and your strength over them, and we just pray that you would let them know that you're right there with them, and you have a purpose, and you have a plan, that you have a great purpose for their life, and they matter so much to you. And then, Lord, I just pray for everyone within the sound of my voice that you would let them know that you know where they're at, you know what they're going through. And, Lord, you want to take those wipeouts, and you want to turn them, Lord, into a miracle. Do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now, I want you to focus in on that word repent in that short verse there, because the word repent simply means change directions, and that's all it means. It means if you're trying to get to Dallas and you've been driving for maybe an hour, and then you look up at a sign and it says Galveston, 30 miles away, you know you're going the wrong direction, so what do you gotta do? You gotta make a U-turn, go north, on 45 and start going the right direction. It's just a complete change of direction. Repentance just means a complete change of direction, a change in the way you're thinking, a change in the way you're going. And so he's saying here to stop trusting in yourself and change directions and trust in God. And sometimes it takes a wipeout to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can change directions from trusting in ourselves to trusting in God. Now focus in on that phrase, so that your sins may be wiped out. You see, our big problem is not the unexpected wipeouts that come into our lives. Our biggest problems are the things that we haven't let God wipe out of our lives. God wants to wipe out all of your guilt. God wants to wipe out your worries. God wants to wipe out your fears. God wants to wipe out your hopelessness but we have to allow him to do that. God allows wipeouts into our lives to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can place our trust in him and he can wipe out all the obstacles in our lives that keep us from living in his refreshing grace. And so this weekend, we're talking about the biggest obstacle that the enemy uses to keep us from really swimming in God's ocean of grace. It's the obstacle of shame. Now, shame isn't caused by God. God doesn't cause shame in our lives. God doesn't shame us. God wants to wipe out all the shame in your life so that you can swim in the river of grace. You can breathe in the atmosphere of his grace. You can be totally refreshed in his blessings. Now, God convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts you of sin whenever you feel guilty about your sins and you sin and you feel bad about it. That's God pushing you to forgiveness. When I feel guilty because of my sins, that conviction and guilt pushes me toward Christ's forgiveness. I feel bad about my sins, and I go, God, I'm so sorry. I agree with you, that sin. And God says, you're cleansed, you're forgiven. Shame, on the other hand, is so destructive because it not only says your sins are bad, it says you are bad, you are worthless. You're no good. You have no value. 
Now, if you're not a believer, Satan will use either shame or pride as obstacles to try to keep you from trusting Christ. He'll use the obstacle of shame to keep people from coming to Christ and his free gift of salvation when they think, I'm too dirty for God's forgiveness. You don't know what I've done. You don't know all the things in my life. I'm a mess. I'm too bad for God to forgive me. And and he'll use the obstacle of shame to keep someone from coming to God. Or he'll use the obstacle of pride where someone thinks, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not as bad as they are. I mean, I'm sure I've sinned, but I'm not that bad. I don't need Christ and his forgiveness. Now, if you're a Christ follower, the enemy will try to use shame to keep you stuck in a sin so that you have no victory. He'll use shame to wipe out your purpose and to keep you from living in the powerful grace that will refresh you. So how can I let God wipe out all my shame? Shame is unnecessary, but yet most Christ followers feel burdened by shame. And it all comes from the enemy. It's God's plan for your life that you have no shame, that you walk shame-free, and you walk in the refreshing rain of his grace, and you breathe in his atmosphere of grace, and you're set free and filled with joy. That's God's purpose and plan for you. So we're gonna look at a guy in the Old Testament who had a really strange name, Mephibosheth. Can you say that fast three times? Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. I've tried it over and over again. Students, why don't you try that? Say it fast three times. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. But be careful. You don't want to say something in church that you'll regret. But Mephibosheth, what a strange name. But the meaning of his name was even stranger. His name meant from the mouth of the shameful thing. So his name literally means shame. Now, we're first introduced to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter four, on the day that his grandfather, King Saul, and his father, Jonathan, were killed in battle. When his grandfather and his father were killed in battle, Mephibosheth was five years old. And when his nanny heard the news that Israel's enemy had killed King Saul and Jonathan, and the enemy had defeated Israel, she was afraid for the young boy's life, and so she hurried to find a place to hide him. And in her haste to flee, she wipes out. She dropped him, and he breaks both legs, and because they're fugitives on the run, there's no medical care, so his legs can't heal properly, and he's crippled for the rest of his life. And the next time we see Mephibosheth is when King David asked, is there anyone left in King Saul's court? Is there anyone left from his family that I can show kindness to, especially for what my friend Jonathan did for me? Now, this was the exact opposite of what kings would normally do in this day. Whenever a new king would ascend the throne, the first thing that they would do was always try to kill all the descendants of the last dynasty because if they didn't kill all the descendants of the last dynasty, there was always a threat that that descendant would one day try to take the throne. And so normally a king, when they would take control, the first thing they would do to protect their throne was to kill the descendants of the last dynasty. But instead, David offers amazing grace. Think about it for a moment. King Saul was a lunatic, crazy kind of king for the last few years of his life, and he tried to hunt down David and kill him. 
He was obsessed with it. And so David says, hey, I, I want to hunt down all the relatives of King Saul, not to hunt them down to kill them like Saul tried to do to me, but to hunt them down to bless them, to show kindness to them, to show amazing grace to them. And so David asked everyone in his court, is there anyone left from King Saul's relatives that, that I can bless? And they said, well, there's this one guy, and, and he's lame in both legs. So they didn't even know his name. They just knew that he was the man who was lame in both legs. That was sort of his identity. He'd been identified as that for so long. I'm sure Mephibosheth took that on as his identity. And I just want you to know right off that your past pain doesn't identify you, doesn't define you. Your past wounds, your past hurts do not define you. Your present failures do not define you. Your wipeouts do not define you. Your sins and struggles do not define you. If you're a Christ follower, what defines you is that you're a child of God. What defines you is who you are in Christ. That's your true identity. That's who you are. That's your true heart. But we still live in our flesh, and so our flesh desires sin and things that are hurtful and destructive to us. But our, our true heart, who we are in Christ, can't be defined by our sins and our struggles. And so we see that Mephibosheth, identified as this boy who was broken, this young man who had struggles. And so then, in 2 Samuel 9, 4, and 5, we pick up the story. David asked, where is he, the king asked, and Ziba answered, he is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. Now, Lodabar literally means no pasture. And in Many translations, it actually means no thing. So it was a nothing kind of town in the middle of nowhere. It was desolate in the desert. And the only reason you would ever end up in Lodabar so far away from Jerusalem is because you were running from something. I mean, this was a town filled with fugitives and outcasts, the lowest of the low in society, thieves, someone who was running from something. There's no other reason why you would end up out in the desert in Lodabar, so far away from Jerusalem, unless you were running from something. And of course, Mephibosheth was a fugitive. He was running as far away from King David as he possibly could because I'm sure he thought David's a normal king the first thing that he's going to do is try to find me and kill me. So I've got to get as far away from David as I can. Here he was, living in his shame, knowing that his grandfather tried to kill the one who is now the true king. What a shameful thing to know that your family has blown it. He was supposed to be king one day, but his family blew it. And here he is, living in Lodabar. He's living in this place of shame as far away from King David as he can get. He was a fugitive from King David, at least he thought. And shame causes us to live as a fugitive from God's grace. It, it causes us to distance ourselves from God and his grace that he has for us because shame causes us to try to hide. You see, we're all broken. 
We all have scars and wounds and brokenness and struggles and sins, and yet shame, shame causes us to wanna hide those things, to try to pretend like we've got it all together. Shame causes us to live in Lodabar, as far away from the King of Kings grace as we can get. It causes us to distance ourselves from God and his grace. You see, when you're filled with shame, I messed up so much, you, you don't feel like spending time with God because you think, I don't deserve to meet with God. Reminds you of your shame. You don't really wanna come to church because, man, I'm not living right. It just, and the enemy tries to fill you with shame because he wants to distance you from the king of kings, mercy and grace. Mephibosheth lived as a fugitive from King David's grace. And King David just wanted to shower his grace upon him. And see, so shame, when you feel shame, you can't help the feeling of shame. Satan will put that feeling of shame on you and you feel that shame, but here's what you do. It's kind of like facing a shark. You gotta punch it. You gotta step right into it. You gotta poke it in the eye. You gotta face it. If you run from shame, you end up in Lodabar, trying to hide because of your shame, trying to hide your brokenness. What you do when Satan makes you feel that shame and it weighs you down, you just step right into God's grace and go, you know what, I've sinned God and, and I feel shameful, but I'm coming right into your grace because I thank you for your forgiveness, for your love, for your grace. Thank you for who I am in you and who you've made me to be. I'm an adopted son or daughter of yours. And you push right into God's grace. But usually shame causes a flight from grace because you wanna hide from God. And that's the opposite of what we need to do. Lodabar was this place of hiding in shame. Think about it for a moment. Mephibosheth was in Lodabar because he didn't want anyone to know who he was. Because he was ashamed. His family had blown it. His grandfather had tried to kill the true king and he didn't want anyone to know that he was the grandson of the old king. He didn't want anyone to know his identity, so he hid in Lodabar trying to hide from his brokenness. And we do the same thing with God, and we end up in Lodabar trying to hide our brokenness. We act like we've got it all together on the outside. We don't look broken, but we're broken on the inside. Every one of us are broken. We all have struggles and brokenness and ugliness on the inside, but shame causes us to try to hide it when the only answer is just to bring it out in the open and bring it to God and let him give, a, give his grace and forgiveness and times of refreshing and live authentically before him. You gotta move out of Lodabar to move to the palace of God's grace. And fortunately, that's what King David did for Mephibosheth. He came after him in Lodabar. He finds him in Lodabar, and he brings him to the palace. Look at 2 Samuel 9, 6. It says, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. So they find Mephibosheth, they bring him to the palace, and I'm sure Mephibosheth was thinking, it's judgment day. I'm sure he was thinking, King David has probably been trying to find me. 
you know, ever since he's been king, and now he has found me, he brings me to the palace, and I'm gonna be executed, because King David's a normal king. He's gonna do what kings do. But instead, instead of being executed, David says, Mephibosheth, whoa, you're here, finally. How amazing. It's as if David has known him his whole life, and he says, I just want you to know that you're welcome here. Sorry, it's taken me so long to find you, and I want to restore everything that you've lost. Isn't that powerful? And God can restore all that you've lost. And we see that Mephibosheth is still struggling, though, with shame. He's still loaded down with shame. It says in verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, dog in that day was the lowest of the low. It wasn't like today where we honor our dogs. Sometimes we worship our dogs. If you have a cat, the cat thinks that you're worshiping it. But, um, but sometimes, you know, we put our dogs on such a high pedestal and we, we love our dogs, you know. But back then, nobody in their right mind had a dog for a pet. You could barely feed your family. So dogs weren't pets. They were just scavengers. They were the lowest of the low. And so Mephibosheth here is saying, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm no better than a dead dog. I'm bad, I'm miserable, I have no value. He was still buried in shame. He was having trouble receiving grace. And we have so much trouble receiving grace. I don't know about you, but I have so much trouble just receiving God's unconditional grace and mercy. How do you know if you're having trouble receiving God's grace? You try to earn it. You try to be good enough for God to love you. And I know many Christ followers, including myself, that I find myself at times trying to earn God's grace. And when you mess up, you think you don't deserve it. You mess up so you don't wanna spend time with God, you don't wanna be in church, you don't wanna be connected with us. I don't deserve God's grace. And here's the point, of course you don't. That's the definition of grace. It's something that you could never deserve, that you could never earn. You just have to receive it. How do you know if you're struggling with receiving grace? You, you try to earn it, and when you fail and you mess up, you think God loves you less, so you don't want to be connected to him, so you go to Lodabar and you hide your brokenness in shame instead of bringing it right to God. But see, we could never deserve it. That's the definition of grace. How do you know if you're struggling with receiving God's grace and just living in God's grace when you do really good and you're really obeying God and living for the Lord? You start feeling like you deserve for God to do great things in your life all the time. And when something bad comes into your life and you look over and you see somebody who's just living in sin, you see someone who doesn't love God at all, and they're getting blessed, you get angry. And you go, God, that's not fair. I don't deserve this, what's happening to me. I'm doing really good. And you've forgotten that if you really got what you deserve, you wouldn't want that. You see, mercy is not getting the punishment that you deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is getting the blessing that you can never deserve. And so 
God wants you to learn how just to receive his grace. And the way you do that is just admit your brokenness, your struggles, your sins, and just constantly come to God for his grace and live in his grace so that he can give you victory over those struggles. But you see, whenever I sin as a Christ follower, God doesn't love me any less. He doesn't love me any less. It hurts him deeply. It wounds him deeply because he knows how much sin devastates me. It hurts my family, my relationships, how it hurts our relationship with God. It hurts him deeply, crushes him when I sin, but he doesn't love me any less. And when I do great things for him and I obey him and God uses me, he doesn't love me anymore because he already loves me perfectly. So there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less or any more than he does right now. And we just live in his grace and thank God for that undeserved grace. You don't have to earn it. You could never deserve it. But Mephibosheth's still struggling with that shame, and he says, I'm just a dead dog, I'm no good. And remember, that's what shame does. Shame not only says your sins are bad, but you are worthless. The Holy Spirit, when he convicts, he says, your sins are devastating, your sins are bad, but that's not who you are as a Christ follower. You are valuable, so valuable, I think you're worth dying for. And so, He's living in shame. In Romans 8, 1, it says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God doesn't shame you. God doesn't condemn you if you're a Christ follower. He'll convict you of your sins. You'll feel bad for your sins, and you'll go to him for forgiveness. Conviction from the Holy Spirit always drives you to Christ for forgiveness. But shame, on the other hand, says you're worthless. God doesn't love you. How could he love you? You're worthless. God's tired of you. You keep sinning. You're a mess. You're not valuable. No, that comes from the enemy. But I love how David just ignores this shame coming from Mephibosheth. In 2 Samuel 9, 9, it says, Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. So David restores everything that's lost. I love it after Mephibosheth says, I'm just a dead dog. I'm just no good. I can never do any good. I'm just worthless. David says, oh, okay, whatever about that. But here's the thing, Mephibosheth. He just ignores him. That's the way God does with us. He goes, hey, stop talking for just a minute because I'm gonna restore everything you've lost. And God can restore everything you've lost. God can restore your lost innocence. God can restore your lost integrity. God can restore your lost hope. God can even restore your lost years. Those selfish years, those wasted years, those sinful years. The scripture says he can restore the years the locusts have eaten. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. God can restore everything that you've lost. King David in his grace said, I'm gonna restore you, Mephibosheth. In 2 Samuel 9, 16, the most important verse in this whole story, it says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So the king brings an outcast from Lodabar into the palace, completely forgives him, completely loves him and adopts him as a son and seats him at his table. And that's exactly what the king of kings did for me. He found me as an outcast. He went all the way and found me 
and there's no Lodabar that is so far away from God's love that he cannot reach you. You can run from God, but he'll always be right there following you every step of your life, waiting for you to turn to him. He went all the way to Lodabar from me, and he took me as an outcast and brought me back to the palace of his grace, adopted me as his very own, a child of God, and he seated me at his family's table to live and breathe and feed on his grace. Four times in this passage, it says Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. Now, why does it mention that so many times? Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. Why? Because it was a big deal to eat at the king's table. When you ate at the king's table, it meant that you were an adopted child of the king. You were part of the king's family, and you would be provided for for the rest of your life when you ate at the king's table. It was the biggest honor that could be bestowed. It was the table of grace. Can you just imagine the first night that Mephibosheth ate at the king's table? I mean, just try to imagine it for a moment. Here you have this huge banquet table that's ornate and handcrafted, and it's, it's just huge. And at the head of the table is King David in all his majesty, the great king in all his regal wardrobe sitting at the head of the table, and then there's David's family. And you notice Absalom first because the Bible says that he was handsome and striking and tall and strong and just exuded confidence, and he was like a magnet for people. And when he came into the room, everyone's eyes just went toward Absalom, and people wanted to get to know Absalom. And so you see, there he is seated at the king's table, and around him is all of David's sons and daughters, tall and strong warriors, beautiful, striking daughters seated at the table. And then you see the 30 mighty men, David's 30 mighty men. I mean, everyone in all Israel knew every one of them by name because of their great exploits in battle. These great, powerful warriors seated at David's table. And then you notice there's one empty chair, one new chair that's right there at the table. It's been brought to the table. And then I just imagine Mephibosheth coming down on crutches, and it takes him a while. He's slowly making his way, struggling toward that chair. And when he gets to the chair, the servants help him take his crutches, and they push him up to the table, and there at the table, all of the brokenness and scars of his useless legs disappear at the king's table. He looks just like one of the king's sons. He's just a child of the king. His all his brokenness disappears seated at the king's table because he's an adopted child of the king. And that's what happens with us. He takes us from Lodabar and he brings us to the palace. He wipes out all our sins. He adopts us as his very own child. And then he pushes us up to the table of grace. And there at the table of grace, all of our brokenness and sin and all of our mess just disappears at the table of God's grace. 
and we can eat at that table of grace and live at that table of grace. That's what this series is all about. It's helping us learn how to just live in the reign of God's blessing and grace each and every day that we could never earn and never deserve. But here's the interesting thing to me. Mephibosheth had to choose to go to the table. Seems like an easy choice, that's for sure. But King David let him choose whether or not he wanted to come to the table. Whether or not he wanted to be adopted into his family and he chose to come to the table. And every one of us have to decide whether or not we choose to come to the table of grace. We, we can run to Lodabar or we can run to the city of pride and act like we don't need his grace. But either way, it's a barrier that keeps us from experiencing God's grace. Everyone has to choose. I want you to look at this next verse because this helps clarify a question that a lot of people have. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. You say, Carrie, isn't everyone a child of God? No. God created everyone. God loves everyone just the same. I mean, you can curse him, reject him, you cannot believe he exists, but he loves you just the same. He loves everyone just the same. He created everyone, and he wants everyone to be adopted into his family. He wants to adopt everyone into his family, but he gives you the choice as to whether or not you want to be part of his family. He gives you the choice as to whether or not you want to come up to the table of grace and be adopted into his family. God wants you in his family but he's not gonna force you into the family. Just like King David didn't force Mephibosheth into the family. He gives you that chair. There's an open chair right now at the table of grace. And see, Mephibosheth came up to that chair that had his name inscribed on it, the chair that he would sit in for the rest of his life. And you have a chair at the table of grace with your name inscribed upon it, but you have to choose whether or not you're gonna sit at the table of grace. Are you gonna sit in that chair? Are you gonna trust Christ and his grace and his forgiveness? There's a couple of things that could keep you from that. One is shame to think, no, he could never forgive me. I'm too bad. It's above me. I could never deserve it. Of course not. You just receive it. Or it's beneath me. In pride, you could say, I don't really need that. I don't need forgiveness. I'm a pretty good person. I'm trying to be a pretty good person. I don't need the table of grace. And you miss out on the banquet, the feast of God's blessing that he has for you. You see, we each have to choose to come to the table of grace. He does it all. He does everything for us. It's undeserved, but we have to choose whether or not we want to be adopted into his family. And then after you choose to be adopted into his family, he wipes out your sin. He adopts you into his family and he gives you heaven as a free gift one day. It's called salvation. But then he asks you to take steps of grace, obedience. Whenever God tells you to do something, you just take a step of grace, a step of obedience. And the first step is the river of restoration. He always takes you to the river of restoration where he starts restoring your heart, where, where he starts putting the broken pieces back together 
And that's a process of restoration that takes place in our lives. But the first step is the river of restoration. The first step, once you receive Christ and go to the table of grace, is to go to the river of restoration, and that's baptism. We're all commanded to be baptized after we receive Christ, and that's the first step of obedience after Christ, and that obedience brings blessing, undeserved. In Matthew 28, 18, it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus said, I want you, when you come to Christ, when you come to me, to be baptized, to show that you're mine, that you're proud to be in my family. It's our profession of faith. And since next weekend is our super summer baptism. And by the way, last year was the first year we didn't get to have our super summer baptism since we started it years ago. And next week, we're back with our super summer baptism. The Woodlands Campus, it'll be out at the Cross Fountain at Atascacita. We've got a Cross Fountain in at North Point. We bring in this big baptistry pool. It's amazing. And I'm telling you, I believe there'll be over 1,000 people next weekend that'll be baptized. And since it's our super summer baptism and hundreds of you need to be baptized next weekend, I wanna just ask a few frequently asked questions and answer them from God's word for you to help you along. Also, to remind all of you who've been baptized how powerful it is when you go into the river of restoration, how meaningful it is that you've done that. And for the hundreds of you who wanna get baptized next weekend, Well, the first question is, what does baptism mean anyway? Well, baptism is our public profession of faith in Christ. You see, it's telling everyone that we've been adopted into his family, that we've received Christ, that he's wiped away our sins, and we want everyone to know. It's our public coming out to say, I'm a believer, and I want everyone to know I'm part of God's family. I went to the table of grace, and I received Christ. You see, back in the New Testament, when someone would become a Christian, and they could be an undercover Christian until they were baptized, but baptism was always a public ceremony, public celebration, like we have. And we're gonna have so much fun next weekend. We're gonna have cake and punch and celebrate. You can invite friends or relatives or just come by yourself. It's gonna be a big celebration out there. But you could be an undercover Christian if you weren't baptized, but once you were baptized, then the religious leaders, the government officials would put your name down and you'd be persecuted, imprisoned, or killed. So everyone knew that when you were baptized, you were being baptized to say, I love Jesus, I'm part of his family, I want everyone to know it. This is my coming out party to say, I am a Christ follower, and I'm proud of it because Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me on this earth, I'll be ashamed of you in heaven. And you're saying, I don't want him to be ashamed of me. I am not ashamed of him, even if I get persecuted. That's what baptism was, and that's what it still is. Did you know that? Yeah. You're baptized to say, I love Jesus. I don't care who knows it. I want everyone to know I love Jesus Christ and that I'm part of his family. I don't care what happens to me. I want everyone to know that I love Jesus. It's just that in America, we don't get persecuted when we get baptized. But in many countries in the world today, there's more persecution of Christians being baptized than at any other time in history. Did you know that? In communist China, for example, it's against the law to be baptized. You get baptized in a public celebration, you get persecuted. It's against the law. In most Muslim countries, it's against the law. You could get executed being baptized to say, 
I am a part of Christ's family, and I want everyone to know it. So many believers will be baptized next weekend along with you in parts of the world where they will be persecuted because they're saying, I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of me. I'm not ashamed of him. I take my stand, even though I know it may mean persecution. And so when we're baptized, we don't get persecuted here because of freedom of religion, praise God, but we're making the same statement, and we're saying we stand with our brothers and sisters around the world. We're gonna profess our faith in Jesus Christ. It also means Christ died, was buried, rose again, he's alive in your life. It's also a symbol that he's wiped out all your sins, that he did that on the cross. And so another question is, how should I be baptized? Should I be sprinkled? Should I be dunked? Should I be thrown into the river? Should I be held under for 10 minutes? Some people should probably, but um, I get that request often from wives, usually for their husbands. Um, Let this really take, please. But how should I be baptized? Well, in the scripture, everyone was baptized by immersion, being completely dipped underwater. It best symbolizes Christ died, was buried, rose again, he's alive in your life. And the word baptize or baptism was a transliterated Greek word, baptizo, which literally meant to be immersed or completely dipped underwater. And so then where did sprinkling all start? Well, sometimes it was a convenience issue. They just didn't have water, but they really, back in the Middle Ages, they twisted scripture and and didn't understand because there is a principle of original sin that is true. Scripture teaches that you're born with this bent to sin. We all are born with this bent to sin and we need salvation, but then they added to it original guilt and that is if a baby dies before they're baptized, then they spend eternity apart from God, that they go to hell, which is totally against all of context of Scripture. If a child dies before they're even old enough to understand how to receive Christ, they go immediately to be with the Lord in heaven. But they got that all mixed up, and so they started baptizing babies, and when they baptized babies, some of them drowned because you know, it, it didn't work out, so then they started sprinkling, and that's really how sprinkling started in denominations. And I know in a lot of denominations now, they still... They sprinkle, and it's more of an act of dedication for the parents and all that. And, and here's the thing. It will in church, we wait until children are old enough to understand and make a profession of faith in Christ and receive Jesus before they're baptized, because baptism is always after you receive Christ. And let me say this. Probably most of you, if you're like most people at Willand Church, maybe you were baptized or sprinkled as a baby and your parents did a great thing for you. They stood before God and before the church and they said, we're gonna do everything we can to raise our child to fall in love with Christ. But you got your head wet and cried and you didn't even remember it. But they made a, a commitment right there. That's why we do baby dedications. You know, and we, de- and we have them over in the chapel now. Like every three months, we have all these beautiful baby dedications and, and we pray for the child. The parents commit to the Lord. It's a great dedication. But then when that child grows up and is old enough to make his or her own commitment to Jesus and receive salvation and sit at the table of grace, then they're to be baptized because it's their decision. And I would say this, if you're like most people at Willand Church, you were sprinkled or baptized as a baby and you've grown up now and You've received Christ, but you haven't been baptized biblically. And I would just challenge you biblically to get rebaptized next weekend. This is your weekend. I have rebaptized thousands of people that were sprinkled as babies, 
and I've never had one come out of the water and say, Pastor Kerry, that first baptism was much more meaningful to me than this one. No, but I've had a lot of people come out and hug me going, why is this so powerful? I feel so moved. Obedience brings blessing. And you're professing that you're a part of God's family. It's your choice now. You're completing what your parents did. It's your choice now. And you're following God in baptism. And obedience brings that blessing, that undeserved grace of God. And so there are a lot of questions I know you have. Probably the most important was, what should I wear? And, and it, that's real easy. Next weekend, we have the Super Summer Baptism. Um, after the service that you attend, say it's the 9.30 service, after the service you attend, you bring your clothes, shorts and a shirt, swimsuit and a shirt. Um, you bring a towel if you want, but if you forget your clothes, we have shorts and shirts. Dark shorts, dark shirts of every size, I promise you. We have towels. We have sunscreen. We have um, blow dryers. Don't need that, but you may. We have everything that you need. We have makeup, ladies. We have everything you need after you get your hair wet, okay? Everything that you need in our dressing rooms. And so at the end of the service, I'll say, those of you who are being baptized, going out to the dressing rooms, you go out to the dressing rooms, and you get ready for the baptism. You come out, and then I'll be out there. My wife, Chris, will be out there. We'll have other pastors out there. And you'll come into the waters, and it'll feel good. You know, you'll come into the waters. If it's raining, it's okay. You'll just get sprinkled and immersed. So you're covered, okay? If you're having struggles with it, you may get covered next week. And then the lightning of God may strike too. Who knows? Who knows? It could be a very moving experience for you. And, but then you come into the water. We'll help you come into the water. And you put your hands together. If you forget to put your hands together, I say, dude, put your hands together. And then I'll ask you, do you want to hold your nose? And um, a lot of people do. And I'll say, that's great. I'm going to raise your hands up to your nose. And you just hold your nose when I baptize you. And then I'll raise your, I'll say a few things about baptism. I'll raise your hands up and you hold your nose and I lower you under the water. Then we have one of our pastors say a prayer. We do a little commemoration. We do maybe two, three praise songs and we raise you back up. <laughs> if you're alive, you're a member. So, no, and I tell you what, I haven't lost anyone in all these years. No, I've lost two. I've gotta be honest in church. I've just lost, no. I remember there was one guy that came up to me and he said, I want to be baptized with everyone else, but I don't think you can handle me. He was like six foot seven, almost 300 pounds, former pro football player. And I said, I can handle you, dude. I've only lost two or three people in 20 years, you know, and he didn't laugh. So then we got into the pool, and I'll never forget as we get into the pool, I just keep walking, and it's up to about here on him, and it's up to here on me. And I said, hey, just kind of bend your knees and help me out, you know? And he did, and right back up, and he was so happy. Never seen anyone so happy. I think because he was alive, he was so happy. But I tell you, we have baptized people of all sizes. We baptize people in wheelchairs. We baptize. There's no excuse next weekend. And just sign up right now. And you can invite friends or just come by yourself. It's amazing. It's the most powerful thing we do because it symbolizes life change. And so you can go to wc.org and you'll see the big baptism thing right there. Yeah, just go to wc.org slash baptism. And go ahead, guys, go to that. What happens when they go to that? Show them what happens. You can do it. Yeah, go ahead and go to it. You can, go, you can do that right now on your smartphone. You can register. Pick the service, the campus, and then uh, you'll go flip the slide, guys. And then you fill that out. And then there's a place to put how many people are being baptized. And by the way, if your children are six, seven, eight, nine years of age, and they're starting to ask those 
spiritual questions, maybe they're ready. The Holy Spirit may have been speaking to their heart. Maybe they're ready to receive Christ. We'll have our children's pastors out there next week to talk to them. They're great at talking to them to see if they're ready. We baptize families together if everyone is ready and knows what it means to receive Christ. Um, I baptized a family of 19 once, uncles and aunts and everything, all at once in the baptistry pool. And so we'll baptize families of five or six. We'll baptize couples, married couples who are saying, I'm standing for Jesus. What a powerful thing for your marriage. Uh, We'll baptize single adults who say, I'm gonna stand for Jesus. I'm following him with all my heart. It's an amazing thing. And so I just really encourage you, get signed up, get ready, and join over 1,000 next weekend. Some of you students are gonna be baptized at camp in the ocean. You're gonna make your stand for Jesus Christ. But I want you to um, hear from a couple in our church who came to the table of grace and they found Jesus Christ. Two of the over a 1,000 they came to the last super summer baptism, and Jeff and Crystal. And one thing about baptism you need to know, there's something healing. When you go to God and Christ for forgiveness, you get forgiveness, but when you obey him and when you keep taking those little steps, you find healing. And telling someone else and proclaiming and confessing that you love Jesus, there's a healing that takes place. And I want you to hear the healing story, and then we're gonna sing to the Lord God and thank him for his healing in our lives. Just watch. God is here to change lives right now. God is here to heal emotionally, relationally, physically, and spiritually. The greatest healing of all is life change. And that's what baptism represents. And that's why every time I watch that, you know, I'm moved. And I can barely hold back the tears because that's what it's all about. Jesus died, was buried, rose again. He's alive to change our lives from the inside out. Don't you tell me he can't do it. Don't you tell me he can't do it. Don't you tell me he can't change your life. Don't you tell me he can't change your situation. Don't you tell me he can't change your family. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has a seat with your name on it at the table of grace. Let's bow together right now. If you've never sat in that seat and been pushed up to the table of grace, by Jesus Christ, just right now choose to be adopted into his family. Just pray a prayer like this, silently to God as if you're the only one in this place. And some of you students, before you go to camp, you need to get your salvation settled right here, right now, so you can experience all of what God has for you at camp. You just need to pray this prayer silently to God. Dear Jesus Christ, thank you for dying on the cross for me and shedding your perfect, sinless blood. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. So I ask you to forgive me and come into my life with your Holy Spirit. Change me from the inside out. I bring all my brokenness and all the ugliness and all my sins and struggles to you just as I am, and I receive your free gift of forgiveness and grace in heaven one day that I could never earn or deserve. I ask you to be the Lord of my life 
and help me walk in grace and obey you one step at a time. Help me grow in my faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. If you prayed that prayer, Christ came into your life. He'll never leave you. And I know that so many of you want to be baptized next weekend. Sign up for the baptism. Get signed up. Maybe it's your whole family. It's going to be amazing next weekend. We're now at the part of our service where we give back to God some of what he's given us, and we give because we love him. We love what he's doing through the ministries of Woodland Church, over 100 ministries now. And the big one I want to highlight of our over 100, 100 ministries is our high school ministry. We have hundreds of high school students going to camp. And we still need scholarship money. We still need, you know, money. We're taking kids to camp believing God's going to provide for some that cannot afford it. And then, of course, the church subsidizes every single one to try to knock the cost down, and it's enough already. But I want you to pray for them, and maybe God leads you to give extra above your tithes and regular offerings for student ministry today, to be used for student ministry, to be used to reach this next generation, raise them up to change the world, because that's what these guys are doing. And I'm so proud of our team. You pray for God's protection over them and for all the life change that's gonna happen. And maybe God's calling you to give a little extra in this offering. Let's give because we love God, because we love what he's doing through the ministries of this church and ask God to multiply it as we keep meeting needs in our area and around the world for God's glory. The way you give, take out your smartphone and just text the word, give WC, one word, to 77977. Give WC to 77977. It takes you to our push pay app, and that's how you give. Or you can give online if you're at home by going to wc.org slash give and set up recurrent giving. Or you can give on your way out if you're at one of our campuses in the offering boxes, or you can mail in your gift, but make it a habit to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. As we give, we become more like him, and we experience God working in a very important area of our lives, putting him first in that area. I want us to stand Woodland Church because we're gonna pray for these students right now, okay? We're gonna pray for the students and students, you're just gonna hang around after we dismiss everybody in a moment and then you're gonna head off, but we wanna pray over you. We wanna pray for God's protection, for God's strength, for God's blessing, for all of our counselors and staff and team and every student because I know that God has a purpose and a plan for you and he's gonna use this week to change the whole trajectory of your life. He's gonna use this week as a defining moment. So let's pray, Woodlands Church, right now. Lord, bless our giving, bless our, Lord, our serving. Help us, Lord, to just put you first in every area of our lives. I pray that you would provide for our student ministry as it continues to boom and grow. I pray, Lord, that you would just meet the needs of every high school student this week. Protect them, watch over them, strengthen them. Let them know that you're right there with them. And Lord, I pray that you who know everything about everyone would let them know that you know their name, you know where they're at, and you love them. And they matter so much to you and that you have a plan for their life. Lord, bring students to know you as Lord and Savior. Bring students, Lord, into such a close relationship with you. I pray for students that they would see, Lord, that you have a great future for them and they would step into it and be all that you've called them to be as you raise them up to change the world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now I want you to remain standing because I want us to sing 
this closing song. It's all about God's love for you, and it's a new song that our team, our Woodlands worship team, just wrote. By the way, they're doing a big uh, new album this summer, and it's blessing churches and people all over the world, but this new song, um, I want you to sing it from your heart and just thank the Lord for his love for you and just breathe in his grace, breathe in his grace, and when, after we sing, we'll dismiss and we'll go out, and I, I want you to just keep breathing in his grace when you're trying to get out of the parking lot. Okay? Breathe in his grace when someone cuts in front of you on the freeway. Don't breathe out anything. Just breathe in his grace this week. God's got a plan. God's got a purpose. He goes before you. He goes behind you. He goes beside you, and he is with you, and he is for you. Don't you tell me he can't do it. Let's sing to him. Hey, church. Thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.